0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good morning and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dr. Karen Philbrick, and I'm the Executive Director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University and your chair for today's program. M.T.I. leads two competitively selected multi-university consortia. The Mineta Consortium for Transportation Mobility, funded by the U.S. Department of Transportation, and the California State University Transportation Consortium, which unifies the surface transportation research and workforce development efforts of the 23 campuses that compose the California State University System, the largest four-year public university system in our nation. Today, we are pleased to present the 13th Annual Norma Maymaneta Policy Summit, mapping the route to equitable road user charges. This program is presented in partnership with the Commonwealth Club of California, and the Mineta Transportation Institute. But before we begin our formal program, I would like to take a moment to recognize and celebrate our founder, the Honorable Norman Y. Mineta, who passed away at the age of 90 on May 3rd of this year. Norm Mineta's life and his history-shaping career began in San Jose. To understand the legacy of this true American hero, it's critically important to understand six facts about his life which was so well lived. As a young boy, Norm and his family were forcibly relocated from San Jose to an internment camp in Wyoming during World War II as a result of their Japanese ancestry. After the war, he returned to San Jose and to San Jose High School where he was elected president of the student body. As he recalled, he was a Japanese American who had lived in American prison camp only four years earlier, and now his schoolmates were electing him as their student leader. It was a short time for Norm, but for him, it felt like a long way from being in the shadow of Heart Mountain. Rather than become bitter, he then chose to serve his country with honor and distinction, serving in the U.S. Army as an intelligence officer towards the end of the Korean War, before returning home to serve in the San Jose City Council and then as our mayor, becoming the first Asian-American elected to be a mayor of a major metropolitan city in our nation. He then served as a member of the US Congress for two decades before being tapped to serve as a cabinet member in two presidential administrations, first as Secretary of Commerce by President Clinton, then as Secretary of Transportation by President George W. Bush. His accomplishments are significant and varied, but include such things as his work on the Civil Rights Act as a key author of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which offered Japanese Americans an official apology for the injustices they suffered during World War II. And as Secretary of Transportation, when the horrific terrorist attacks of 2011 occurred, he took the unprecedented step of grounding all flights and later created the Transportation Security Administration, the largest mobilization of a new federal agency since World War II. Very, very importantly to the Institute, Secretary Mineta was a tireless champion of our students, encouraging them to consider careers in transportation and public service. He consistently and with enthusiasm supported the San Jose State University campus through his founding of the Mineta Transportation Institute in 1991, through the last months of his life, enthusiastically supporting our Garrett Morgan Sustainable Transportation Competition for middle school students and our Master's of Science in Transportation Management. For his lifetime of exemplary service, he has received the highest honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom awarded by President Bush and the Japan Medal awarded by the Emperor of Japan. In 2001, the San Jose City Council renamed our airport the Norman Mineta International Airport in honor of his service and his years of dedication to our country. There will be two memorial services that are open to the public honoring his life and legacy. The first is on June 11th at 10.30 a.m. in Washington, D.C. at the National United Methodist Church. Here at home, we will honor him on June 16th at 10.30 a.m. at the Civic Auditorium. May our founder rest in peace. and may we continue to honor his legacy in all that we do. One moment, please. Now we turn to today's program, where we will consider equity and road user charges in three exciting parts. First, I'm pleased to introduce a very special guest, Congressman Peter DeFazio, Chair of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee for the 117th Congress. He's joining us for a fireside chat. And at the end of that discussion, we will hear from the Honorable Polly Trottenberg, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation, who will deliver a keynote address and take questions until 11:10 10 a.m. Pacific. At that time, we'll turn to our panel of experts who will expand on the topics that we've discussed earlier in the program. I'm now pleased and very excited to introduce Congressman Peter DeFazio. He has represented Oregon's fourth congressional district for over 35 years, and he will retire at the end of his current term. He is known as an independent, passionate, and effective lawmaker. He's led such policy initiatives as healthcare for veterans, sustainable forest management, clean drinking water, and very importantly, transportation. In the realm of transportation, in fact, he's respected as one of the foremost experts in Congress. He served on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee throughout his tenure. And for many of those years, he served as chair or ranking member of four of the six subcommittees, including aviation, Coast Guard maritime transportation, highways and transit, and water resources and environment. Among his numerous achievements are leadership roles in negotiating the highway transit spending bills that were passed in 2005, 2012, 2016, and most recently, tiny drum roll here, the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. In each of these bills, Congressman DeFazio has pushed relentlessly for funding to keep our aging infrastructure in a state of good repair, to tackle transportation's role in climate change, and funding to support multimodal transportation. Particularly relevant to today's discussion, the Congressman has also been one of the only policymakers to advocate for raising motor fuel taxes, so that transportation users themselves will fund federal transportation spending. Welcome, Congressman DeFazio. We're so delighted you can join us today.
2: Well, well, thanks, Karen. And 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 just first uh, a word about Norm. Uh, Norm was uh, chair of aviation when I came to the committee, and then later when we did IST. And I'll get to talking about how revolutionary that was in a moment. Uh, he was a he was a mentor. Uh, to me. Uh, And uh, I was privileged recently to be able to pass a bill uh, to name the DOT headquarters. uh, And uh, the Senate wanted to name it after Norm Coleman, who was the first African-American, has an extraordinary history head of DOT. And we wanted to name it after Norm. So it's going to be the Normanetta uh, Coleman uh, Department of Transportation. And I talked to Norm just after the bill passed you know, he sounded sounded great, and he said he was really looking forward uh, to coming to the dedication. Um, I'm sad he didn't make it the dedication, but at least he knows uh, that we we uh, gave him a long overdue honor as a historic cabinet member and two-time secretary of transportation under both Democrats and Republicans. So, uh, in his memory, this is a you know this uh, this is ongoing. Uh, he started. The evolution of transportation policy, and that's what where I'll start was uh, the first major uh, bill. Well, really, major bill on surface uh, when I came in was uh, called ISTEA, uh, yeah. and um, that bill uh, was a landmark shift. Uh, it was you know everything before been focused on building out, completing the Eisenhower plan. Uh, the interstate highway system, which was extraordinary to knit the country together and, and create the efficiencies and everything we did with that. Although we made mistakes. Uh, you know, we, uh, we went through urban areas, particularly dividing communities of color. Uh, you know, we, we ignored uh, for many years options other than uh, trucks and single occupancy mass you know vehicles. And so um with IST, we began to look back and say, well, that was fabulous, but we've got to move beyond that. And what Norm introduced, which was at the time revolutionary, was wait a minute, we're gonna have an, we're gonna have a strong emphasis on multimodal uh in this bill. We're gonna have a significant set aside for transit, something that hadn't set uh, you know, before, and that was controversial. I mean, the Highway Users Alliance said, oh, wait a minute, it's our gas tax money. Uh, but Norm would say, well, yeah, but if, you know, there are fewer cars on the road, you're gonna get around more easily and people will be on transit. So, you know, this we, we, we got it done, but uh, at the time it was considered like, no, this isn't, we just want to keep doing the, the Eisenhower plan. And he's like, no, it, you know, it's time to, to move on. Um, and include also included in addition to transit rail. And it had the first ever title on um, cycling and pedestrian in a national service transportation bill. Actually, <laughs> at the time, Joe Kennedy and I, young guys, we were uh, we were we had a plan. We called it a billion for bikes. We were going to say we're going to get a billion for bikes. And at that time, my colleagues were like, "Bikes, bikes are toys for kids and that." I said, "No, oh, no. I was a bike mechanic. This is a viable form of transportation." And Joe and I didn't get a billion dollars, uh, but we did get provision of the bill, which Norm strongly supported uh, to uh, have make every state hire a bicycle coordinator and mandate that every state in building any new federally aided project had to look at the impact on pedestrians and cycling uh, with an oversight uh, by this uh, bicycle coordinator. And then, of course, later on, we did much more in the current bill. We're doing $5 billion dedicated dedicated uh, to cycling pedestrian, and, and a good part of that is to and get more safety, but also to provide more opportunity. So, but Norm started that change. Uh, and uh, that was, I can't, I just can't say how critical that was. And following in his footsteps, uh, I wrote a bill called Invest, which we passed in the last Congress. Uh, which would have been a 21st century transportation bill. It wouldn't have been Eisenhower 8.0. And it would deal with many of the issues that confront us today. Carbon, our largest source of carbon pollution is surface transportation. Uh, The equity issues we have, there are transit deserts out there. There are communities that have been divided by the interstate system. But uh, Joe Biden went down to the Skyway down in New Orleans and said, you know, this thing is aged out. It's got to be rebuilt or come down and we're going to take it down, and we're going to go back to boulevards and things. We'll still get throughput, but we're going to rejoin these communities. Uh, so we're, we're beginning to say, okay, we're kind of tiptoeing into the post-Eisenhower highway-oriented uh, uh, era. My bill would have, uh, like, kicked us into that uh, big time, uh, and, uh, you know, I had something that was really key called fix it first, before you build more stuff, fix what you have, and before you in enhanced capacity, look and see if there are alternatives. Inspired by the state of Virginia, who decided instead of two more lanes on 95, and it costed 12 billion dollars, would take 10 years and be just as congested, that they would build a new rail line, uh, working with CSX, a new bridge over the Potomac River, and connect DC and Richmond uh, for half the cost, and you know, mitigating pollution and and uh, and congestion. So that would have been a principle my bill. Unfortunately, the Senate couldn't accept that. But uh, Pete Buttigieg did guidance on that uh, and saying, well, you know, this is one of the things we're going to look at, particularly when we score grants. Uh, are you doing these things? And of course, uh, the ranking member, Shelley moore Capito, on, uh, on uh, Carver's committee over there uh, held up indignantly some language and pointed to it. She said, this is from DeFazio's bill. This is fixed it first. It, you're doing guidance on this why are you doing that and and Pete says ma'am it's good policy so that was kind of the end of that so the administration is looking as much as possible to, to grab the flexibility in this bill there is money for electrification there is 5 billion dollars dedicated into cycling pedestrian there is money dedicated for complete streets and there's 100 billion dollars more discretionary money which they will rank on equity and other issues as they disperse those funds so this will be and in addition to the record amounts of money, record amount of money for rail, not as much as I wanted, but record. Record amount of money for transit, not quite as much as I wanted, but record. Uh, and they put in a little more into highways and bridges, but hey, we can use it. Um, you know, We've got 41,000 bridges need substantial repair or replacement on the national highway system. And it does have money passed down more to local jurisdictions that will have some passwords down to deal with bridges off national highway system that need work. It's a transformative uh, a transformative uh, bill, and uh, this is really, really critical. Uh, approaching you. it there was a whole issue of how are we going to pay for it? And, um, you know, there's a lot of reluctance. Last time we raised the gas tax was uh, led by Bud Schuster, uh, rolling Newt Gingrich, uh, and working with the Democrats in 1993 under the Clinton administration. We haven't done it since. We should have indexed it then. Uh, we didn't. Uh, and cars are becoming more efficient We're getting EVs. And, uh, you know, but I, I held a couple of hearings on the cost of doing nothing. And the cost of doing nothing uh, far exceed, uh, you know, what uh, we would have to ask of the American people to simply, uh, you know, make this uh, a better system. So um, we, um, we're, we put pilots in. Uh, we've done pilots in the last bill. We're doing more robust pilots here. And we will have a national pilot. Uh, for vehicle miles traveled uh, we have to look beyond the gas and diesel tax even if we could raise them now as an interim measure which i've tried paying for progress barrel tax that could create a lot of money in interim basis instead we backfilled the trust fund with general fund 118 billion and we put another 300 billion of general fund money but come next reauthorization in five years um, you know will that money be there uh, so we have to move toward a sustainable way to fund it, and in, in my mind, it will be vehicle miles traveled. There are issues we have to deal with, uh, particularly people that have privacy concerns, uh, and because it's going to have to have uh, it's going to have to have uh, both. It's going to have to have congestion pricing if you're going to have equity and fairness. You know, you can't charge a rancher way out in eastern Oregon who has to drive 30 miles to the feed store the same per mile charge as someone who has transit options and jumps on 205 in Portland at rush hour and adds to the congestion. So that means, well, you're going to be, we're going to know where you are and when, where you were and when you were. And people say, oh my God, I don't want the government doing that. Although, you know, your iPhone is transmitting that to private vendors all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't seem so concerned about that. So, but we've got to work these things through with pilots to get public acceptance. So we're going to do a lot more robust pilots in this bill, including a nationwide pilot on that. Uh, the second step, which I'd love to go to, and I've had discussions that, you know, we could see, would be a weight mile tax. Oregon has one. Mm-hmm. And that estimates the impact mm-hmm. of the vehicle on the infrastructure. Obviously, heavy trucks, more impact. Uh, and my first two reauthorizations in the committee, the industry came at the head-on, Oregon we're going to kill Oregon's weight mile tax. Uh and now they've come to accept it because it's they, they don't they used have to stop and do that. Now it is electronically uh recorded and collected, uh, no paper keeping, and our our diesel uh prices are lower than in other states. Uh and, you know, but they're paying an equitable share. I I think we could possibly move uh, the industry uh in that direction again in 5 years. When we do another reauthorization uh, and uh, you know other things that we're going to have to experiment with so we're, we're we're encouraging a broad range of experimentation by the states uh, as we go through this bill.
1: Chair Defazio may we please dig a bit deeper into something you just said I'd like to talk about equity in a different context and coupling on to what you said about perhaps a highway cost allocation study. I know this is something you've been calling for. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and the reason behind the need for that study?
2: Well, again, it's, um, you know, vehicles in terms of their configuration, uh, and, and for heavy vehicles, configuration is actually more important than gross weight. Um, you know, we can we can look at the impact of every configuration of vehicle, weight of vehicle on the national highway system uh, and, uh, you know, and calculate, you know, what are they adding to wear and tear? Or even in smaller examples like in Oregon, if you want studded snow tires, you have to pay a fee uh, when you buy the studded snow tires because of the estimated impact you will put on the roads with those studs. So looking at all of the things that cause wear and tear on the system. Uh, and then attributing those costs back to the the vehicles or individuals who are causing those costs would be the fairest and most equitable way uh, to get to, uh, you know, a funding formula in the future. And the other thing you just mentioned, equity, the other thing about equity is, you know, everybody pays the same flat gas tax. Uh, you know, it happens that, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, lower income people can't afford newer, more efficient, or very efficient, or hybrid, or even electric vehicles. Um, So again, we've we've got to look at all of these things in terms of equity and future funding. Uh, And, you know, it's going to be a big project. Got five years to do it, got a lot of pilots going on, and I'm hoping to get think tanks to help, and I'll be out there on the outside helping think this through. So I think we'll be ready in five years.
1: What are your biggest concerns about the impact that fuel taxes has on our low-income drivers?
2: Well, I just I just mentioned that, although it is, you know, <laughs> given what I just paid yesterday, it's a pretty $117
1: or so.
2: No, I well, I do have a, an old forerunner that I used to cart my dog around and I took her for a swim yesterday and, uh, and I take camping and stuff. And I filled it up <clears throat> at a little rural gas station, which actually is cheaper than the one downtown. $80. I'm like, my God, I've never paid $80 for regular gas for a tank before in my life. And I was talking to the guy at the gas station. He said, oh, yeah, people are really upset. He says, and he, and he says, yeah, a lot of people, he says, some guy came and put stickers on my pumps of Biden pointing at it and said, I caused this. And he said, it, he says it wasn't Biden. He one person didn't cause this. I said, no, it sure as hell didn't. Uh, you know, the oil companies in their earnings calls, they talk about excess profits. Oh, dear shareholders, excess profits, we're going to buy bad stock and enrich you. Oh, dear shareholders, shareholders, We're going to have record dividends and help you out. And, oh, CEOs, you're going to get big bonuses. And so I've proposed a windfall profits tax bill to recapture some of that money and rebate it to the consumers. uh, That prices are unnecessarily high. Yeah, they're high because of a whole series of events, but they are jacked up on top of that. Profiteering is taking place in a whole bunch of industries under excuses of pandemic and supply chain disruptions.
1: Absolutely. Now, we only have you for five more minutes, so I'm okay. super curious about your vision for the future. In the next 10 years, by 2032, how do you think Congress should be paying for transportation, and how likely is your recommendation to be implemented?
2: Well, I, I think I covered that a bit already. I think, should, I, yeah. know, I think we're going to you know, do the user fee, well, look at the cost study, and then attribute our attempt to attribute uh, equitable user fees to the different categories uh, of users of the system. I mean, one thing I do hear persistently from the Republicans is all those people in EVs don't pay gas tax. I'm saying, yeah, I agree. I mean, they're going to have to pay uh, a use charge. Uh, Right now, they're at minuscule penetration, but they're hopefully going to grow quickly. And we're going to have electric semis. I mean, I have driven a, a Volvo cab for electric semis. Amazing, amazing ride. Uh, And the great thing about this part of the country is an electric semi can go up a 7% grade just as fast as it can go down, Uh, whereas we have to build passing lanes for the diesel trucks because they can only go 12, 8, 10, 12 miles an hour going up those grades. So um, there's a future out there. There are are no commercial outside of fleet charging stations for for those trucks, and that's another part of the bill we're going to build out. So uh, we're going to be dealing with all those things in the future
1: one last question because i have you for a couple more minutes Your sure. long and illustrious career with all that you have accomplished what is your highlight
2: <laughs> anyway yeah so that's too hard to deal with but i'll do it transportation highlights couple yes um i've always been uh a strong advocate for safety on aviation uh i for years said fa shouldn't uh, promote and uh and regulate, and they said, "Oh, no conflict." And then after ValueJet, uh, my language was adopted to say they don't promote anymore. Unfortunately, it crept back in, uh, and they started talking about people as clients, like Boeing and the Max. Uh, we did the biggest investigation in the history of the committee. Uh, Someone memorialized in the Netflix uh, video Boeing Downfall by Rory Kennedy. And um, you know, we totally changed the way we we're going to certify airplanes, so that doesn't happen in the future. That was big. Uh, and then uh, the other thing would be I started with Bud Schuster, not Bill. Bill was a good friend. Bud was a friend, too. I started with Bud Schuster when he was chair of the committee in the mid-90s, trying to take the dedicated money for harbor maintenance, a tax that Ronald Reagan created to maintain our harbors, which Congress had been diverting for years, and try and make that into a real trust fund, spend that money and do the harbor maintenance that is backlog. Uh, I got it out of the committee twice, much to Bill's surprise, his son's surprise, 20 years later, uh, with the Freedom Caucus supporting me. He's like, why they support you? I said, well, it's a tax, and they think it should be spent on the purpose for which it was intended. And But Paul Ryan pulled it out of the bill twice on the floor, a uh, rule. Uh, and then Nancy became speaker. I passed it, uh, and we got it done in the big year-end budget deal uh, with, uh, with uh, Trump. Uh, 25 years to create the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund, uh, freeing up $10 billion for long overdue maintenance of our ports. So things don't happen easy in Washington, though they don't happen quick. Uh, And, uh, you know, that was that was one. There are other things on the committee, but those those are a couple of the major ones.
1: And what you've described is the power of persistence and the power of diplomacy. So thank you for those terrific (laughs) examples. Your energy, your insight, and your expertise are so deeply valued. And we're grateful for you joining us today for this fireside chat. Thank you oh, Congressman DeFazio.
2: Thank you. I don't often get referred to as diplomatic, but that's okay. Right.
1: <laughs> we'll take that.
2: Okay. Have a wonderful Thank day. You. Okay, bye. Bye-bye okay. now. Bye.
1: Now we'll turn to our keynote speech and afterwards a panel of experts to discuss today's subject, equity and road user charges. Historically, both the federal and state governments have relied on motor fuel taxes to fund a large portion of transportation expenses. Fuel taxes were seen as a way to charge drivers in proportion to how much they drove, a sort of proxy, if you will, for all road tolling. But today, as we appear on the cusp of rapid electrification of the national fleet, taxes are not looking particularly fair and not looking particularly reliable. So now it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator for the keynote portion of today's program, which will dive deeper into this topic. Mr. Jeff Morales will moderate. Jeff is the managing principal of infrastrategies and the vice chair of the Mineta Transportation Institute Board of Trustees. He has led some of the country's largest and most complex transportation agencies and programs employing innovative approaches to produce unprecedented results. He has successfully navigated challenges at the federal, state, and local levels, and has also worked in the private sector. In the public sector, he served as the director of Caltrans as well as the CEO of the California High-Speed Rail Authority. And while in the private sector, very important to today's discussion, Jeff has worked with agencies around the country to develop and advance major capital programs, including working with Los Angeles to oversee the development and implementation of the first ever congestion pricing program on the most heavily congested routes in our country. Jeff, please take it away.
3: Great. Thank you, Karen. And uh, it, in turn, it is my great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker and a very good friend of mine, Polly Trottenberg. Polly is the deputy secretary at USDOT, and there is the number two official in the department and is the chief operating officer of the department. She supports Secretary Buttigieg in providing leadership and strategic vision for the Transportation Department. Polly has worked for over 25 years at all levels of government, including most recently as New York City's Transportation Commissioner, where she helped implement the city's landmark Vision Zero program. Polly also served in the Obama administration as the Assistant Secretary and then Undersecretary for Policy at USDOT. Earlier in her career, um, she spent time in the US Senate, um, as did I, and that's where we first met, uh, where she served Senators uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Senator Barbara Boxer. So Polly, thank you so much for being here with us, and welcome.
0: Thank you, thanks so much, Jeff, and thanks to the Mineta Institute for having me. Thank you, Karen, Dr. Philbrick, Dr. Asha Weinstein-Agrawal, and everyone at MTI, MTI who made today possible. Um, it is an honor to be here on behalf of the Biden-Harris administration, on behalf of Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and I'm speaking to you live from the Manetta Coleman building. Uh, I want to say a special thank also to, to Jeff, my old friend, for, this, for his great moderation and look forward to hearing from the amazing panelists you all have today. And I just want to take a minute, of course, to offer my thanks to Chairman Peter DeFazio. He has been a tremendous leader, a powerful voice for a safer, cleaner, and more equitable transportation system. And we are so fortunate today. We are at a transformational moment in our transportation history. And we wouldn't have gotten there without his leadership. Uh, the Biden administration is certainly grateful to him. We look forward to continuing to work with him. And I, I will say personally, Congress, Congress needs more like him. Uh, before I begin, I also just want to acknowledge Karen's beautiful tribute to Secretary Mineta and just add a few words of my own. He was such an incredible force in transportation I had the honor of getting to work with him here in Washington and out in California. And I especially want to acknowledge how much I think he touched the lives of so many men and women in our field, many of whom have now gone on to have incredible leadership roles on their own. So in in honoring his legacy, let's come back today to the Mineta Institute. And it's fun. I actually realized that I think I last spoke uh, to the Mineta Institute 11 years ago in San Francisco um, when I was previously at USDOT. And we talked about the topic which remains a hardy perennial, which is how do we fund transportation? And this time last year, Secretary Buttigieg spoke at the Mineta Institute. Uh, He talked about what was then the Biden administration's vision for infrastructure legislation, which was at that time still being negotiated by Congress. And the secretary particularly talked about how that legislation, among other things, would help tackle climate change and create jobs in new industries by building out a national EV charging network. So today I get to proudly talk about the implementation of that legislation now 6 month old and known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and how it's going to help us address so many of the urban the urgent transportation challenges we face today of course including climate change and equity. And at a time as, as Chairman DeFazio mentioned when transportation is the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions in the US the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law is going to make dramatic investments as he mentioned in transit, in passenger rail, in building out that EV charging network, in focusing on carbon reduction and resiliency strategies. And at a time when, tragically, just last year, we saw almost 43,000 lives lost on our nation's roadways, which is actually an increase of 10% from the previous year, the highest annual increase we've ever seen. The bill is going to invest in a roadway safe systems approach, which means roadway design, including particularly a focus on the most vulnerable users, cyclists, pedestrians, roadway workers, focusing on roadway vehicle and safety designs and on other safety measures. And at a time when our economy is unfortunately still feeling the effects of COVID and so many American families and businesses are facing rising costs, the chairman mentioned gas prices, the bill is going to invest in ports, railways, and more to grow our economy, strengthen our supply chain, and reduce costs and delays. And of course, at a time when we are still grappling with our nation's legacy of systematic racial discrimination, the bill makes historic investments in transportation equity. So these areas, climate, safety, equity, and economic strength, are the values that are guiding us in the Biden administration at USDOT as we work to implement every aspect of this historic law, including our work on roadway pricing, which is today's main topic. As we all know, current roadway pricing in the U.S. is still fairly limited, mainly focused on highway tolls and parking fees. However, we are seeing, I think, some more experimentation around the country. Certainly, the chairman's state of Oregon has done a lot, and where I just came from in New York, hopefully they are on the cusp of implementing urban congestion pricing, which has been very successful internationally and has really delivered positive outcomes for equity, for, for, equity, for climate, for safety, and for the economy. As this audience knows, uh it, If New York succeeds, we'll be the first big city in the U.S. to do so. And as someone who actually got to be there for the initial legislative work at the state and local level and for some of the early implementation work, I think there are a lot of interesting and exciting lessons we can learn from New York. And we think, look, if we can do the increased use of fees on our roadways, especially if congestion pricing can be adopted more broadly in American cities, we do want to make sure that we at U.S. DOT at the federal level are taking a consistent policy approach that is rooted in equity. But today's topic is a very timely one, and we know when it comes to roadway pricing, there are two sides of the equation to consider, both the cost and the benefits. As we all know, costs matter most for those with low incomes, who often pay a much higher percentage of their income for transportation just to get to work, take the kids to school, get to the grocery store. And as we know, many low-income communities do not have access to affordable, reliable public transportation. And we know now that auto ownership is expensive. It's almost $10,000 per year, as of last year, according to the AAA, and we know gas prices continue to rise. You just heard it from the chairman. We also know that the benefits from these projects particularly matter for low-income and underserved communities. They can benefit tremendously from new revenues invested in better transportation options, particularly accessible, affordable public transportation and biking and walking. Those communities, and all who share roads, can also benefit from faster, more reliable travel times, increased safety, and reduced emissions. So if we want to make sure our tolling policies are rooted in equity, we need to balance both sides of that equation. And If we want to use tolling as a means of of generating revenue, we must provide safe, affordable, and reliable transportation options to enable people to get out of their cars. If we get this right, the peoples and communities that need it most should be able to enjoy the benefits of these tolling projects without having to bear an undue cost. And that's why DOT, including particularly the Federal Highway Administration and the Federal Transit Administration, are working to develop best practices and a consistent policy approach that will balance both sides of the equation. And we'll be doing so in consultation and close work with local communities, with practitioners, as as the congressman mentioned, with, with experts all over the country. The bipartisan infrastructure law, in addition to its many transformative investments in roads, bridges, rail, transit, ports, and airports, does lay the groundwork, as the congressman mentioned, for a new approach to roadway pricing. Now, crucially, the bill did not remove the general prohibition on imposing tolls on roads that receive federal funding, like interstates. But the bill does make important updates to the Surface Transportation System Funding Alternatives Grant Program. These these programs are a bit of a mouthful now called the Strategic Innovation for Revenue Collection Program that will increase its focus on road usage fees so we can learn more about data privacy, administrative costs, operational costs, and implementation. For this program, the Federal Highway Administration will continue to fund pilot projects at the state, regional, and now local levels to test the feasibility of a road usage fee and other user-based revenue collection methods. DOT will also conduct a National Motor Vehicle Per Mile User fee. Pilot program, again, a bit of a mouthful. This is one the Congressman talked about, to test the design, implementation, and financial sustainability of such a fee. The pilot program will rely on volunteer passenger vehicles and commercial motor vehicle owners from across the country and will test a variety of methods to protect privacy of participants and track motor vehicle miles traveled. This will be a complex endeavor, and DOT will be seeking assistance from the Treasury Department and from a federal system funding alternative advisory board to develop policies and procedures for the national pilot. DOTUN will soon be soliciting membership for that advisory board through the Federal Register, and I know there are many, perhaps experts, on this call today. If you're interested, please keep an eye out and, and be sure to apply. And we hear that the chairman has offered to help, continue to help us with this endeavor, and we, we hope we'll get to work with him as well. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Law also established funding eligibilities for congestion pricing in two new funding programs. The Congestion Relief Program, which is $250 million over five years, through that, DOT will be able to provide grants to states, MPOs, and local governments to advance innovative, integrated, and multimodal solutions to congestion release. These grants can also be used for the pricing of parking and roadways without undergoing otherwise pretty complicated federal requirements. States may also use their Carbon Reduction Program funding, which is uh, $6.4 billion over five years to also implement congestion pricing without some of those complicated federal rules. Let me close just by circling back to New York City. We hope the city is on the verge of adopting a congestion pricing model, and they're working closely right now with federal highways to review the environmental and social impacts of the proposal. We know that it's important at the federal level that we get it right with New York so that it can potentially serve uh, as a model for other cities around the US. And I can just tell you as someone who experienced it from the state and local level, It was an incredibly challenging and interesting and important political process that brought all levels of government together in New York to put forward, I think, a very interesting and exciting congestion pricing proposal. So the work is complicated and can be painstaking, but it is also incredibly exciting. We have a lot of challenges still societal, but we have some incredible opportunities, as you heard today from the chairman. And I have to say, thanks to the infrastructure law that that he helped champion and design this is gonna be one of the most exciting and impactful times to be involved in transportation, I think, in many of our lifetimes. We're really looking forward at USDOT to the opportunities that this presents for the traveling public, for our economy, for all Americans. So with that, thank you, Jeff. I'll, I'll turn it back to you and look forward to questions.
3: Great, Polly, thank you for all that and congratulations on getting through the acronyms. You're, <laughs> you've obviously practiced <laughs> a I lot, did an okay so.
0: job on the acronyms.
3: Yeah, yeah, not too bad. <laughs> Um, You talked about New York and the experience that uh, you had there, and uh, that program is now moving forward again after having been put on hold in the previous administration, and you mentioned some lessons learned. What what are some of the key things that you think you experienced and that the city has experienced in in advancing the idea that could be lessons for San Francisco and other cities who are looking at the idea?
0: Yeah, and I think, thanks for that question, Jeff, and it very much gets to where I sort of started my remarks, which is looking particularly at the benefits. In New York, there was a tremendous focus on the need to invest in our transit system. And look, New York is unique among most American cities. The majority of New Yorkers travel by mass transit. So anytime you are investing in that system, you are benefiting a broad swath of the city's residents and particularly Low-income New Yorkers, people of color, seniors, people with disabilities. So the equity arguments were particularly powerful for doing congestion pricing in New York. I will say though, it took some pretty extraordinary political negotiating in New York. I think a lot of you know it can be a fractious political climate, but one that got that actually brought together at that time different different players today, but the mayor, the governor, the state legislature, advocates, local elected officials in New York City. It was, I think, a tremendous political effort. And, you know, look, we may all have our opinions about about the former Governor Cuomo, but I think he did do a really good job of bringing a sense of urgency to the equation. And, you know, now New York is is working through the federal process and that brings its own complexities. And again, I think we're really hoping as we help New York work through some of those environmental questions that those lessons learned will, you know, Jeff, you you mentioned San Francisco or other cities that they will benefit from from the from the process that New York is currently going through.
3: And you mentioned also some of the international examples, and um, you know very successful programs in London, Stockholm, Singapore, elsewhere. Did you draw any lessons from those cities, and, and do you think there are applicability from what's because they've actually had a, operating systems uh, there? Absolutely, for years
0: now. drew drew a, drew a lot of lessons and, and got to visit um, with our counterparts in London and Stockholm. I, I personally didn't get to Singapore, but but other of our experts in New York did, and. You know, one, we sort of learned about, I think, the, the sort of the technological ways you can do it and some of the issues that, that were just remarked upon, privacy and other things, how you make sure you get the technology well, but also how you do think through who you're charging, who you're exempting, how much you charge, whether you use variable tolls. And, you know, both of those cities, you know, particularly London and Stockholm that I'm more familiar with, have grappled with all those issues over the years. When, it was interesting, when we first sat down with the Stockholm experts, um, they said to us, we felt very important that that we make congestion pricing about congestion, that we are appealing to, particularly in the Scandinavian context, in people who have environmental interests, because we're going to talk about reducing vehicle emissions, and that we're appealing to people who, you know, were willing to pay more to spend less time in traffic. And at least in the Scandinavian context, they didn't focus a lot on where the money was going to go and what they were going to invest the dollars in, I think in London, there was more of a sense of we 're going to be investing these dollars particularly in the bus system. There was right. also a real uh, observation in London that they noticed a real improvement in roadway safety, as I mentioned in my remarks at a time when in the u s we 're seeing record numbers of roadway fatalities is so traffic, so tragic um, that was another benefit they saw in london so so we drew some lessons from them, but in the New York context, you know let 's be clear the 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 driving political motivation that people rallied around was that we could make deep investments in the transit system there, which again is so broadly used by such a large proportion of New Yorkers.
3: Yeah, I had the, the opportunity to work in London when the charge was being implemented and worked at Transport for London. And I, that was the story that didn't get told as much, was the massive investment that they made in, in the expansion of the bus system and, and also in the in the tube so that the fee didn't become just punitive. You gave people yeah. a choice, right? So that they they had an alternative to driving if they wanted one. And that ties to the the infrastructure bill, certainly, which you know, the massive investments now that can be made in transit so that people can have an alternative.
0: And I am proud to say I think the timing has actually turned out to be very favorable for that, because that was part of the driving factor in New York a few years ago when this passed the legislature was an urgent need for investments in the transit system and less of an ability as they had in London to do a lot of investments ahead of time. But yes, the bipartisan infrastructure law is going to help New York. And look, cities all over the country get to work right now in expanding and improving and strengthening their transit systems. And I think that will make it easier if we're asking people potentially to pay more behind the wheel to be offering them safe and affordable and reliable alternatives.
3: So in terms of funding, you know, the gas tax has been the, the foundation of the surface transportation system for 70 years now, right? You know, and we now have two things that at pretty much at direct odds with each other, the very sound policy push for electric vehicles, which your department and the administration is pushing very hard, you know, but of course then the inability so far to tackle the other side of it, which is what do you do to replace those revenues? So how much does, the need to move to electric vehicles, accelerate the need to to figure out alternative funding sources.
0: I mean, I think, Jeff, and it's funny, as I I say, I I kind of watched my 11 years ago self uh, speaking Mm. to the Mineta Transportation uh, Institute about this very issue and basically sort of got the same question. Um, And I'm sort of going to give the same answer, I think, which is we are well on the way from, you know, for better or for worse, transitioning away from a system that is paid for with gas taxes. You heard it from... Chairman DeFazio. We are, you know, now the, the largest majority of our surface transportation program is paid for with general funds. And, you know, whether it's, you know, we may all agree with the policy or not, it is the way Congress has trended now for over 10 years. And, you know, it is potentially the way we're going to continue to trend You know, I think part of all this experimentation that we're going to be doing with obviously these user fee pilots and the things that are there in the bill will give us a chance to look at some other models, whether there might be other user pays ways of raising revenue, you know, that could involve electric vehicles or, you know, other things we could do. But I, I think in the long run, we've sort of voted with our feet, so to speak, that we are going to be using a fair amount of general funds to fund our surface transportation programs for the foreseeable future.
3: Uh, Chairman DeFazio mentioned privacy as an issue, and I know that's something you're focused on. And people raise the concerns about privacy when it comes to vehicle miles traveled and how you monitor that. Um, What did you? What is the department doing to look at that question? And how real an issue do you think it is?
0: Yeah, and luckily we have a lot of examples. And I I certainly got to work on some of this uh, while I was commissioner in New York. There are a lot of ways you can collect this data and anonymize it. We do it with EasyPass. We do it in some cities like New York when we're looking at, you know, what Uber and Lyft are doing. So I think, you know, the sort of the technological solutions have gotten very, very good. It is a real issue, and of course we want to make sure that, that privacy isn't compromised, that we're not gathering this data, that if we're for using it for analysis purposes, that we're anonymizing it. But there are many, many examples all around the country of where we are doing this already. And look, as as the chairman pointed out, those of us who have cell phones, which is most of us now, we are being tracked. Um, I think understandably where people start to feel anxiety is they want to make sure that government isn't tracking you for unintended purposes. And and I think we can build a lot of safeguards into the system. Again, there are a lot of cities and other places that that are already have those systems up and running, and I think they've proved very successful.
3: It is a little ironic when you look at Instagram and Facebook and everything else that uh, people put their lives you, out there.
0: You and, are being watched already, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um,
3: in the in the existing system under the gas tax, truckers are treated differently than and, and diesel fuel is treated differently, recognizing the impact that trucks put on the on the road. Um, how would how are you looking at trucks versus passenger automobiles? And what sort of reaction or engagement do you have with the trucking industry on this whole approach?
0: Yeah. And and let me take a, a step back on that very question to say one thing I think the pandemic has brought home for us all. Um, I mean, I think many of us knew before, but it's really brought it home, particularly for the American public, is how much we rely upon the trucking sector and how much we rely upon the men and women behind the wheels of those trucks. Boy, we needed them during the pandemic. We needed them to stock our grocery shelves, to bring us those packages, to bring medicine and masks and all the things we needed. And, you know, they really performed under difficult circumstances the past couple years. So I will just say in the Biden administration at USDOT, and I know this is really true for Secretary Buttigieg, we have tremendous appreciation for the work they've done. And it's not an easy profession, as we all know. Um, And, you know, one thing we've been working, you know, very closely with the with the industry on is how do we make those jobs more sustainable, make them better jobs, uh, more, you know, more highly paid. Um, One thing we're working closely with the truckers on is how do we make sure we have things like more truck parking around the country. So I think there are a lot of things we want to do to help make sure that this is a sustainable and viable industry. It's absolutely crucial to the American economy. You know that said, you're right. When we look at pricing roadways, and, and the chairman alluded to it, and how different vehicles protect, protect, you know, put their impact on those roadways, we may want to look at different ways we can price. And I think as we're doing some of these experiments with user charges around the country, we'll, we'll get to look at some of that, and I think find some ways that feel fair, that are raising appropriate amounts of revenue that don't have disproportionate economic impacts. Um, but again, we really want to make sure the trucking industry has a big seat at the table. Uh, you know, we really treasure the important work that they've done, particularly in the pandemic period, and that they're continuing to do now.
3: I want to shift gears just a little bit um, and talk about the strategic plan at DOT, which that's one of your responsibilities to lead that whole effort, right, in developing that. And want to just for the audience say you have you've identified six primary strategic goals and to me what's interesting is three of those um which are equity climate and sustainability and transformation are not goals that we would have seen in dot plans of years ago you know and how do they represent a different focus that you and secretary pete have about what transportation means to this country
0: it's a great question. And first of all, I want to make sure that I say up front, the real mastermind of the strategic plan, I want to make sure he gets the credit, is our newly confirmed Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy, Christopher Coase, who also leads a lot of our equity work in the department and is, is just fantastic. But Jeff, you, you, you mentioned something that I really want to hit on, because I think one thing I love about the Biden administration and, and Secretary Buttigieg, we are an administration, and I hope the audience would agree, we are very clear in what our priorities are. Um, You've been served on transition teams in the past. I I got to serve on this one. And even just starting out in the transition, this was an administration that I think particularly had a relentless focus on climate and equity. And it's not a surprise. I mean, I think if you look at what are some of the most pressing problems in the country, those rise to the top, and certainly in the transportation system. As we said, we're the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. We have a tremendous impact on air quality, on land use and you know so those are naturally those are naturally going to be priorities for this department and obviously because i think we have a really young and and visionary and forward leaning secretary he is very interested in that innovation space and i think pressing us you know look we're a big federal agency and and transportation as a field you know sometimes we're cutting edge sometimes we like to sort of do things the way we've always done them and i think he is really pressing us you know particularly in an era with so much technological advancement to think of ways that we can be more innovative. And particularly now that we're implementing this major transportation bill, how can we do it in a way that is the most efficient and the most effective?
3: Very good. The goal of transformation, um, again, is an interesting one because this pricing initiative, I guess, comes under that goal in some ways. But I think there's a larger suggestion there that we need to be constantly pushing the edge in terms of what transportation technology is and how people get around and things like that. What do you see as some of the exciting developments that the department's supporting through research and development and that we, we should expect to see on, on the horizon?
0: Well, I'll say this up front as someone who you know got to run a large urban transportation department. One place we always like to start is there are a lot of fantastic, interesting new innovations out there, and I'll mention a couple. But but one thing I always like to try to do, I tried to do it in New York, and we're trying to do it here in the federal level, is also make use of the great advancements that we already have. In New York, I spent a lot of time trying to make sure the city could use the design build procurement method. Our federal highway administration here in Washington is often helping state DOTs do some things which may not seem that revolutionary. Technologies like ramp metering or, or doing, you know, large bundling contracts for, for bridge rehabilitation, things that are, you know, perhaps they're technologies or innovations or new ways of doing things that have been around for a while. But part of, I think, what we can do in government is continue to press those, um, you know, in parts of the country or communities that haven't kept up. So that's sort of, that's maybe the bread and butter part of of innovation. But then, as you mentioned, Jeff, look, there are a lot of exciting forward-leaning things happen. I mean, I think now in transportation, what we're seeing with data analytics, with technology, looking at, you know, next generation in terms of global positioning, there's so many exciting things happening on that front. And then something our secretary is also very interested in, looking at construction methods. How can we use composite materials what are ways we can use technology to speed up projects, lower their cost, make them more long-lasting? So there are so many exciting things happening in the transportation front. I have to say, one of the wonderful things about implementing this big bill, we are going to have the opportunity, hopefully, to seed more of those new technologies and innovations, and partner, I think, with some of the creative, uh, you know, and brilliant minds all over the country as we do so.
3: That's great. So, you know, you mentioned earlier about the. Um, uh, tolling on, on the interstate system and the prohibition that continues on that. Is that something you see changing? And are you hearing more states wanting to have that ability to, to do it? And and should it be on a state-by-state basis or a more generalized approach?
0: I mean, it, it's it's interesting, uh, Jeff. I, I recall in the Obama administration when <laughs> we talked about what was our point of view on sort of lifting the prohibition on tolling interstates. And you were very familiar with, with some of us who were in the administration at that time. We came from a diversity of viewpoints and from all over the country. We never could reach consensus on it. Um, fast forward to the Biden administration, I'm not sure we've reached consensus yet either. I think short of that, though, again, I think with the pilots that we are going to be you know, helping to cede through, you know, through the funding and the programs in the bipartisan infrastructure law and in what we're starting to see happen locally all kinds of tolling experiments around the country, New York's efforts on congestion pricing. I'm hoping we will start to see more political momentum build on that front. But I have to say, I don't think the politics have potentially quite gelled on a consensus that we're ready to just kind of let tolling on the interstates happen in a, in an unfettered way.
3: Um, so there is a, a pilot program coming up, um, Congressman talked about it national. Can you talk a little bit about what the elements of that might be, and are, are there specific things that you're looking to test and demonstrate or try out in that program?
0: Yeah, and I mentioned it a bit in my remarks, and we are starting to put it together. I think we're very excited, but I also want to say that is one, as I mentioned, where um, you know we're looking forward to having the advisory committee and sort of come one, come all. I think I think we would like to invite experts and localities around the country to help design it with us. You know, one thing I think in transportation that we can always do more of is experimentation. You know, as you pointed out, Jeff, the Highway Trust Fund is, is, you know, not coming close to covering the cost of the surface transportation bill. We have EVs coming. We have all kinds of new technologies on the horizon, potentially automated vehicles, you name it. Um, And we need to sort of, I think, through more of the experimentation about how we're going to treat these vehicles, what the financing packages are going to look like, how it might work in different parts of the country, getting those equity pieces right, making sure um, the benefits are going where they need to go and we're not disproportionately burdening any particular community or population. So we're very excited. Um, I think, as you know, Jeff, there's been a lot of interesting thinking and writing and a bit of experimentation on this over the years. But here's a chance, hopefully, maybe to take it a bit more to scale around the country.
3: We've uh, we've had an interesting thing. People have long paid for the use of specific facilities like bridges and tunnels. Um, certainly in New York, you're very familiar with uh, you know and the the tolls on the 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 Port Authority maintains on the bridges and tunnels fund all sorts of things throughout the the area, and that seems to be accepted generally. Right? You know, people. And even when you increase them, what are the tolls now? Eight or nine bucks, I think, on the GW oh, bridge. more or, than that.
0: <laughs> are they? Okay,
3: it's been a while since I've uh, driven yeah. across. I guess, but do you see, you know, in the whole process of a shift to uh, fees, how does that factor into, you know, the, those types of specific facilities? Are they do you think they still will continue to be paid for separately, in effect, or do you see it all becoming part of one or?
0: I mean, yeah, it's interesting being back at the national level, um, seeing the parts of the country, and New York probably takes the lead on that, that have been willing over the years to toll themselves through various means, through tolling authorities or or, or specific roadway projects to pay for the infrastructure they need, and then, you know, right now there are parts of the country that are proudly saying, "We will never raise a toll," right, Um, and. You know, so for me, it's hard to picture. I think we're a ways away from kind of a unified national system. And look, I do think for big cities that need to invest in mass transit systems and move millions of people uh, and and tackle congestion potentially in a big way, you know, tolling is going to be an easier political sell. But that said, it's it's not that easy a political sell, even in New York. And, And as you probably know, one of the big debates about New York's congestion pricing plan is heard from the other side of the river from New Jersey. And the sense that they have, we're already paying these port authorities, which, by the way, I think are up to more like $14 during rush hour. <laughs> we shouldn't have to pay more on top of that. Um, so people have a willingness to pay tolls up to a point. But you know th- there can be strong political pushback when people start to feel that the tolls are you know, exorbitant and, and unfair.
3: I've seen there's a, a budding new uh, slogan in New Jersey from politicos to say, just stay in New Jersey, right? that's the way to avoid the congestion charge. Sure. Sure. I don't know that that's a sound economic policy, but it's a push.
0: It, I, I will just I will editorialize for one minute and say it is important that the whole region work together. Obviously, New York City remains a big engine of jobs, but New Jersey and, you know, to some degree Westchester and other parts north of the city are where housing is being built. Um, it's very hard to build housing in New York City. So the region needs to work together, and and I certainly hope they will come together on a, a pricing, a congestion pricing scheme that feels fair to all parties.
3: Um, another little shift uh, here. One of the highest profile projects, certainly in the New York area but nationally, is the Hudson, or the the Gateway Project and the Hudson Tunnel, which again your administration has restarted, and. Uh, That's a critical link, obviously, and not just for New York and New Jersey, but for the entire Northeast. Um, I think, you know, we're looking at uh, a new Trans Bay crossing here in the Bay Area, too, which is the gateway of the
0: West, I believe. Yes, the gateway
3: of the West. Yes. Um, But could you talk a little bit about how important that is and, again, in the broader sense of what it means to the region, not just as a transportation project?
0: And, and you know this, Jeff, it has long been, in transportation circles, a bit of a debate about what is what constitutes a project, the phrase has been, a project of national and regional significance. And my answer has been, well, Gateway is the poster child for that. Obviously, it is a crucial rail link. It is, you know, we, we have a tunnel under the Hudson. She's served us well. She's over 100 years old, inundated with salt water during Hurricane Sandy, in desperate need of rehabilitation. Oh. And not sufficient capacity. And anyone who has spent time traveling, you know, by Amtrak or by New Jersey Transit um, through that tunnel knows that. And you know, one thing I think that is so exciting at this moment—it's it's a very complicated project. And obviously, it involves two states, it involves the Port Authority, New Jersey Transit, and the federal government as a partner, and just as and, and Amtrak as well. Usually, when you have that many cooks in the kitchen sort of coming up with the governance and agreements on funding can be very complicated. Um, But it is crucial that we get this right. And I'm I'm proud to say I'm part of an administration literally from the president of the United States to the secretary on down. This one is a priority for us. We are hands-on. We are working closely with the two states, with Amtrak, with the Port Authority. Just had an opportunity to meet with Chris Collori, who hopefully will be taking over the reins of the Gateway Development Corporation. And You know what's exciting is we work through the the governance and the complicated challenges of what will be, I think, after California High Speed Rail, Jeff, the largest mega project in the United States. We at the federal level, thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law, thanks to the president and and Chairman DeFazio and others, we come to the table with some funds. And you know, if we look, we're talking about some of our European colleagues. For projects of this magnitude, typically in the European context, the federal government puts in a big portion of the funds, and you know. We'll be negotiating what the federal share is going to be, but I'm happy to say, you know, we're Uncle Sam and we're here to help, but part of how we're going to help is to bring real resources to the table. And I think when we're done with this project, it is going to unlock, you know, first of all, the the safety and redundancy that we need under the Hudson River, but also new capacity and a chance to grow both transit and rail in the part of the country, um, you know, where we have, you know, enormous economic activity and enormous mobility and climate changes. So... um, it's, it's an exciting project, and we're all hands on deck. We're rolling up our sleeves, and we're excited also, of course, to work with California on uh, the Gateway of the West. That's
3: great. Well, I think one of the other really important things about that project is, uh, you know, as a country, we've kind of forgotten how to do big things when it comes to transportation. It used to be, you know, you look at the historic levels of investment that were made, and we're at about, what, a third of as a percentage of GDP, you know, we're well below what we historically did. Other countries are continuing to make massive investments and we've kind of been afraid of them. And so I think that the, the gateway project is, is the way of getting back into the business, if you will, right. Of showing that we need to do big investments. And, um, so, kudos to you and the entire team for pushing that one along.
0: And and let me just add, and you know this from the California context, and and part of the other thing that we've lost that other countries, I'd say particularly in Europe and Asia China, leads the list of not doing those big projects on a regular basis. You don't build up the workforce. You don't build up the manufacturing base. You don't sort of, when you build a tunnel once every 10 years, you're not that good at it. When you're building a tunnel every six months, you, you get pretty good at it. So, You know, the other exciting thing about the bipartisan infrastructure law, it's going to give us a chance to develop those muscles again, hopefully to grow new industries, to train a whole new generation of workers, hopefully a really diverse group of workers um, in skilled trades to help build these projects and to to help us get good at them again, to do them at scale, to, to be efficient and, you know, get that tunnel boring machine working all the time instead of popping in once every 10 years. Yeah,
3: that's great. Well, I think we have time for just about one more Question: um, I'm going to shift gears again on you, and I hope you don't uh, mind. But you know, with the economy opening back up and with Memorial Day weekend just having been happened, we're seeing the air system, the aviation system, you know, flooded with cancellations, and challenges. That's another part of the system you oversee. Um, but is, is is that just part of the system kind of readjusting to the economy being open, or are there should we continue to expect the sort of the waves of cancellations and things that, that we, we saw over the last weekend? <laughs> it's, a,
0: it's a great question. And, and thank you for that. And it's, it's, it's very timely. I've, I've just actually been this week in discussions with a couple of airlines on exactly that topic, which is a reminder that the summer has not been off to a good start. And look, there's a feeling I think in the administration and I certainly hear it on Capitol Hill that, you know, to the credit of Congress and and the, the last administration, the federal government put in a lot of dollars to help keep the airline industry afloat and to make them whole during COVID. And I think there was an expectation that they were going to retain a lot of their workforce and kind of be up and running. And look, the airline industry, I think they all acknowledge that, but they would also admit, you know, perhaps they've been a little optimistic. We have obviously still had... Um, Kind of ups and downs with covid over the past couple of years sometimes we think we're completely in the clear and then you know unfortunately'll we'll, we'll have a new wave and i think one thing that we're hearing consistently from the airlines and this isn't just in the airlines this is maybe a little bit of the great resignation that hiring and retaining their workforce has been you know typically challenging but it i think they would admit it's been more challenging perhaps than they anticipated and that you know typically if you know, for pilots, they'll, they'll, in a typical year, they'll hire, some airline will hire 500 pilots and 300 of them will stay. You know, now they have to hire 800 pilots to get those 300 to stay. So, look, it is something that we're all grappling with throughout the entire supply chain and the economy. But I will just say, f- from USDOT's point of view, we are holding the airline's feet to the fire and saying we, we really want to see better customer service, you know, potentially make sure, particularly in the summer as we see thunderstorms and all kinds of weather. Um, that airlines are planning for that, and that we are doing our part, obviously, as the agency that runs the air traffic control system to make sure we're staffed up and that we're ready for contingencies as well. So, look, we all have a role to play in the system. Um, and I think, again, the airlines are, are pledging they're going to try and do better. We will we will be keeping an eye on that.
3: Great. Thank you. Well, I think the audience has seen today that uh, U.S. is in good hands with Polly uh, there, working with Secretary Pete, and that she has a grasp of pretty much everything going on in transportation and a practical understanding of how to get things done. So um, I really want to thank you for joining us today. I don't know if you have any last words you want to leave us with. Uh, no, I'll just say get thanks back to you, to Jeff. Business.
0: I'll say thanks to you, obviously. Thanks for all the leadership and great work you've done in the field since then. And it's so nice to reconnect with the uh, the Mineta Transportation Institute and, again, to honor the legacy of, of Secretary Mineta. Um, may he rest in peace. We all miss him so much.
3: He had an influence on all of us. Thank you again, Polly. Thank you. So I'd now uh, like to move on to our panel discussion and introduce the moderator for that. uh, Another good friend, an old colleague, Stephanie Wiggins. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with, with and for Stephanie over the years. And I think uh, people should know we're all gonna end up working for Stephanie at some point. So that's just who she is. Um, she's the CEO of the LA County Metropolitan Transportation Authority, known as LA Metro, um, and before that was the head of MetroLink, the Southern California Regional Rail Authority. She's um, a lifelong trailblazer and a champion of equity and inclusion. Stephanie is the first woman and the first African American woman to lead LA Metro, um, and is doing a phenomenal job. Earlier in her career, she uh, And she'll talk about it, I'm sure. Uh, She came to Metro first to lead the congestion pricing program in L.A., which was groundbreaking. And you can learn more about Stephanie's great career and all of her accomplishments in the bio that's provided in the online program. And with that, I will turn to Stephanie and take it away.
4: Thank you, Jeff. Um, Good morning, everyone. I'm truly honored to serve as the moderator for this panel. Jeff talks about um, my start with LA Metro with congestion pricing, but we would not have been successful without the uh, support of Jeff Morales and his team getting us there. So it's been a really um, great session so far. appreciated hearing from the Congressman, of course, our Deputy Secretary just now. Um, clearly acceler- you know, accelerating the transition to electric vehicles brings a really a new urgency to discussions on how to replace the field taxes, with other broad-based, reliable sources of transportation revenue. From Wyoming to Delaware to California, more and more state legislators are considering mileage fees. Regions like the San Francisco Bay Area are considering expanded tolling. And of course, we just heard quite a bit about New York City and how they're leading in uh, adopting a congestion pricing proposal, hopefully very soon. Overlaying these discussions is a persistent call to consider the equity of any new charges on drivers. It raises a number of questions. How will the charges impact low-income drivers? Does payment require access to banking tools that are not universally available? What are fair rates to charge for vehicles of different types, such as the rates for light versus heavy-duty vehicles? And should the fees be the same for a zero emission electric car and a very fuel efficient, inefficient car? Let me introduce our four distinguished panelists. I'll share just a few details about each as you will find additional information about them in the program. Rima Griffith is executive director of the Washington State Transportation Commission, a position she has held since 2005 The commission's responsibilities include serving as the state tolling authority and leading the state's research and pilot programs, exploring the legal, fiscal, operational, and policy impacts of transitioning from field taxes to a road usage charge. Hassan Ikrada, my good friend, is executive director of the San Diego Diego Association of Governments, known as SANDAC, He is one of the preeminent transportation planning experts in the nation with over 30 years of experience. Prior to joining SANDAG in 2018, he worked for the Southern California Association of Governments and L.A. Metro and the South Coast Air Quality Management District. James Corliss is executive director of the Sacramento Area Council of Governments, known as SACOG. At SACOG, he has overseen the rollout of one of the nation's most successful bike share systems and helped the region secure over a billion dollars in state funding for local transportation projects. He's also led the development of SACOG's first ever racial equity framework. And then our final panelist, Dr. Asha weinstein Agrawal is the director of MTI's National Transportation Finance Center, as well as MTI Education Director and Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at San Jose State University. Dr. Agrawal has researched transportation revenue policy for over 20 years, focusing on holistic evaluation of different tax and fee options. So I'm looking forward to a really good discussion I'll start by posing a question to each of our panelists in turn. So, Asha, let's start with you. Uh, With the public opinion research perspective that you offer on equity and road charges, what have you learned from 13 years of national polling on this topic?
5: Well, thank you, Stephanie, for the introduction and for that question, which is near and dear to my heart. I've been working together with Hillary Nixon on a survey series funded by the Mineta Transportation Institute that every year we reach out to a random sample of U.S. adults and ask them what they think about paying for transportation. And that survey has included their views on mileage fees. So, I want to highlight three different things that we've been learning that I think relate to understanding how the public at large sees equity and mileage fees. The first is that we have found over these years that a growing number of people do support the concept of mileage fees, at least at its sort of broad outlines. And I think it's, you know, not unreasonable to to presume that people who say they support the concept in general probably don't see it as at least starkly unfair. They have some acceptance, which which implies that they see it as, you know, reasonable or fair. And we've been asking essentially the same survey question for 13 years. Would you support, you know, mileage fees, a flat rate that everybody pays? And support has just been rising. When we started in 2010, only 21% of our respondents supported that idea of a flat rate mileage fee, Whereas this year, we had 39% of respondents supporting it. So that's an 18 percentage point growth in sort of the number of people who seem to think that mileage fees are basically a reasonable concept. The second point I want to make is that people's views about the equity of mileage fees seem to pretty clearly relate to the structure of the rates charged. Um, I don't think people just inherently either see all mileage fees as fair or unfair. It depends what it it looks like. Um, So for example, when we asked if the rate should vary by driver income, we found this year that 59% of our respondents thought that there should be a lower fee rate rate, for low-income drivers, and I think that's a a clear sign that the public, um, you know, at least modestly over half of them, see the fact that it's much harder to pay these charges if you're low income and that it is reasonable to to lower the rates in compensation to that. On a related idea, we checked if people thought that the rates should be the same regardless of vehicle type, and here we'll find that 55% of people thought that drivers of electric vehicles should pay at least somewhat of a lower rate. Um, so again, I think this is, is showing us that the public does see that there is an equity impact in the sense that, you know, right now, if you have a gas guzzling vehicle, you're going to pay more per mile essentially to drive and then say, in a Prius or a Honda Civic or an electric vehicle, and that you know, we may want to, to keep some measure of that um, as we transition to mileage fees, where if you have a more polluting vehicle, you would pay proportionally a bit more. And then just to wrap up, the third point I'd share is that um, I think contrary to maybe what a lot of people assume, we don't find that support for mileage fees varies a lot by income. Um, when we ask, you know, do you support mileage fees? essentially the same percentage of people support it who are in our lowest income groups as who are in our highest income groups. And since you know, lower income drivers are the ones who you know, most directly would, would feel the you know, like grunt, um, if they're kind of generally in line with how people in higher income groups see these fees, I think that's it's important that we, we consider very carefully what the people who would be most impacted are telling us and, and again they're not particularly different from everybody else um so let me stop there and we can hear from others
4: thank you asha um and listening to you i'm reminded of our efforts to to deploy our form of congestion pricing in la and uh, your work just um, elevates how important it is to do this research and to make sure that it's inclusive of all voices because um, the work and the outcomes that we're hearing as a result of the work you're doing are very uh, informative. So thank you, Asha. Let me turn to James. Um, These days, road pricing often gets described as a transition from field taxes to a mileage tax. And you have both urban and rural residents, a lot of freight traffic and relatively low incomes compared to other re- urban regions of the state. So, James, how are you thinking about this in the Sacramento region, given the specifics of your local economy and geography?
6: Yeah, well, um, thank you, Stephanie. Um, and for, for those folks who don't know, um, and you described SACOG earlier as a Council of Governments, we represent the six counties of the greater Sacramento region. So all the way from Davis to the Tahoe Rim, uh, San Francisco, one of our most famous suburbs. I'm sure everybody's heard of it. Um, so, so here's the thing. In the Sacramento region, we have no pricing whatsoever. We have no tolling. We have no express lanes. We have no bridge tolls. Uh, we don't do a lot of parking pricing. Our, uh, and what we do know is that uh, we do actually have quite a bit of uptake on electric vehicles. All of that uptake in electric vehicles goes by income. In other words, our, uh, most of our electric vehicles are owned by middle to higher income residents. Most of our lower uh, MPG vehicles, uh, less fuel-efficient vehicles, are owned by lower-income folks and are a lot of rural residents, too. So our rural residents drive a lot, but very low MPG, uh, fuel-efficient, um, inefficient vehicles. And so, so we're trying to – and one of our questions is, do we, do we essentially, without any pricing so far in place – do we actually even try to be the, you know, leap over the landline and go to cell phone technology? In other words, what's the kind of pricing we actually want rather than uh, building, you know, following a lot of the sort of traditions of the, uh, you know, single, single express lane on some of our more congested corridors? And that's where the, the, the mileage fee comes in. Uh, We actually have a really exciting grant from the state of California. I want to thank Caltrans and the state. Uh, We did it in partnership, and it's in partnership with um, um, my my good friend here, Hassan Akrada, from Sandag and with SCAG. And each of our large MPOs, representing two-thirds of the state's population, are going to stand up a pilot project to look at uh, uh, different kinds of both uh, uh, mileage fees that perhaps vary by time of day. So thinking about transportation really is utility and pairing those with incentives for people um, so that so that we can actually get people out of their cars. We can actually give some financial incentives for people to travel differently or get into a, a van pool or ride a bike uh, or, or or stay home and telework, which we don't, we don't have to have as big an incentive as we used to uh, uh, for that. So we're actually very interested in the question of how do we think about pricing, not simply as a just a straight transition, revenue neutral, but but first and foremost to manage demand, to make sure that we have a more efficient system, and and we don't we're we're honestly a little concerned about just a straight revenue neutral transition. Uh, I know that's what we're talking about. We'd like to think about this more creatively, and we'd like to think about it in our region as a way. If we do it well, if we do that well, we actually think that uh, we would get lower income and more rural residents actually paying less for mobility, and it would be much fairer and more equitable.
4: Very interesting. Um, Basically, what I hear from your perspective, James, is we have to be reminded that one size does not necessarily fit all, and the opportunity with pricing is really to tailor it to the unique needs of um, the area in which and the community in which you're looking at. Um, You mentioned um, this uh, joint work that you're doing with other MPOs in the state. So let me turn to Hassan and ask you, Hassan, from your perspective in your region, what would be the income equity impacts for the San Diego region if you switch from field taxes to a mileage tax?
7: Thank you, uh, Stephanie, and, and good morning. It's an honor to be with Asha, James, and, and Rima, uh, but it's really an honor to be in a panel moderated by uh, Stephanie Wiggin, who's not only a friend, but somebody I look up to. I, I told the panel the other day, I called the group, I said, I want to be like Stephanie when I grow up. Um, amazing uh, person, moving amazing things in LA. Uh, you know, Stephanie, the the... I think the discussion of the mileage tax and the equity in transportation is such an important topic because it really uh, deals with the historic inequity in the transportation industry. Uh, the gas tax is extremely regressive. This is, you know, uh, a fact. Um you know, gasoline expenditure are larger percentage of uh, low-income low communities. Um, low-income uh, tend to drive older, uh, more consuming gasoline cars, therefore paying more. So can we design a tax to be such a sliding scale for different income levels um, by using rebates or other mechanism to say, we're gonna move to a different form of uh, taxation that's more equitable to start with the system we have is regressive not equitable the system we're trying to talk about which is a user-based system like james said i don't think we should be under any illusion that we're going to turn on a, a new system overnight without doing a lot of work collecting a lot of data figuring out the mechanism of how we collect to overcome some of this inequity, even in, in the mileage tax. But I can tell you, uh, and I will, will give myself credit here. When I was in, in LA, um, we, uh, w- we do a, a, a regional plan and we were actually the first in the country to say, we're gonna assume a, ve- a vehicle mile travel tax. And luckily, we had people like Phil and Stephanie who said, okay, well, I think we should look in the County and see what forms work. Now, at the time, we always were conscious of equities, but we really never took it seriously. And so in the last couple of years with COVID, this really brought the 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 the, the issue at the top. And in San Diego County, I, I think... While it's no different politically, the discussion from any other place. I think equity playing a major role in deciding whether whether um, going to a mileage tax as opposed to gasoline tax is a good thing or a bad thing. Like Asha mentioned, I think there is more receptivity to the concept. Even so, still we cannot answer the question: How do we guarantee that this new? Uh, form of taxation is going to be more equitable really more equitable not just by checking the banks but truly deal with with not hurting further and not further uh, uh, doing what the industry did for the last 60 or 70 years so in san diego i think uh, we're starting a tough discussion uh, about that transition Uh, not only the the revenue neutral change from Uh, gas tax to mileage tax but we assume additional fee and that additional fee is really not only for just collecting revenues or dealing with the social equity and social justice but also for changing behavior Uh, so i would say equity is playing a major role there isn't a lot there isn't uh, answer to a lot of questions about how we deal with it but we believe the technology is there to scale the new form of taxation so that uh, we're not hurting the low income and minorities like we did in the past five decades.
4: Thank you, Hassan. It's a very interesting point you make about the technology being there. And now it's just um, really, I think this topic is personal to everyone. And I think that makes it so challenging. But I appreciate that the work that you're leading in San Diego. Um, Let me turn to Rima, because um, she's in Washington State, and um, they've been tolling for quite some time. So, Rima, can you share uh, with us some key lessons you've learned uh, on equity and tolling? Any particular challenges and opportunities that you've all had to uh, vet and experience?
8: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me here today. First of all, this has been really interesting to hear everybody's uh, comments and perspectives. Um, In Washington State, um, we have been tolling pretty actively um, since the 2010-ish timeframe, uh, especially on the express toll lanes. And we've also been studying road use discharge um, extensively for over a decade now. So we have a lot of research under our belt. Um, And one of the things we see um, between the two worlds is that there's a lot of similarities, but they're also very different. Um, And when we talk about equity in tolling, um, based on our research, which is still underway, um, we kind of have limited uh, ability really to provide um, equity uh, and pay relief. And it usually typically is gonna come in the form of either toll exemptions or toll rate reductions. Um, and and trying to ensure equal access to our our price facilities, for sure. But even um, those bridges that are told may have um, a captured audience where you don't have a choice. Um, But with road usage charging, we see an opportunity to align and coordinate those two worlds, if you will, to some degree. And to Hassan's point, um, it really is an opportunity to think about how we can expand transportation equity in general and how we pay for our system. I mean, tolling um, is different from RUC in that tolls are applied um, to a facility, right? To either pay for its construction or to manage demand by time of day pricing where we're really looking at road usage charging as a fundamental transportation funding source that everybody will pay. So I may not live near a toll facility and so I don't pay tolls. Um, But if I'm my state has a road usage charge, a per mile charge, Uh, I will be paying it like everybody else. So um, from our perspective, um, anytime this is the case, we really have to think about those financial impacts to the public, their ability to pay and their ability to access that program. And some of the mitigation approaches we've been looking at for road usage charging are I would say a bit more three dimensional than what we will see emerge in the tolling world. And this is largely um, when we compare it to the gas tax, where we've got this tax at the pump, it's embedded at the rack. Um, The public doesn't really see the tax. It's not on that receipt that comes out of the pump. It's really an invisible tax. And and nobody, as lawmakers, um, they're not going to have a choice to exempt or reduce that tax um, by user type, for example. But with road charging, um, where we see greater opportunity to really expand our tax equity, even beyond what we'll be able to do with tolling is the fact that there are a number of policy levers that lawmakers um, can consider under a road charge system. Like for example, um, offering uh, a discounted um, road usage charge per mile rate or capping the total annual charges qualifying individuals would actually pay, um, offering periodic payments, um, or even offering refunds for overpayment and gas taxes Um, assuming that the gas tax will continue to be charged for many years uh, after a road usage charge system slowly transitions and comes into place in many of our states. Um, So we see the opportunity there to really enhance those equity aspects. And um, from an operational aspect, and polling should also be connected, right, and coordinated for sure, at least on the back end where customers can have the choice of having a single account to pay for both of those charges. Um, but lastly, we kind of see toll and rep policies have to be consciously developed uh, together to ensure that they complement each other. And those need to be developed really with active participation from our underrepresented communities as we think about how we want to apply policies that will give um, the biggest uh, benefit to the drivers of our roadways.
4: Excellent, Rima, you got you all have a wealth of experience and um, good guidance. You know, as I listen to the different alternatives, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's road user charging or um, tolling, it strikes me that uh, depending on what the the focus, the mission, and the goal is, that that will kind of drive the policy design. So, I guess what I'd like to ask um, the panelists, and maybe I'll start with you first, Hassan, what is the goal of transitioning from a field tax to a mileage tax?
7: Thank you, Stephanie. So, first of all, I mean, it's, it's a noble goal, but it's actually a necessity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we rely on the gas tax to maintain the system we have and to pay for a lot of things. And that fund is dwindling and, and drying up. As we uh, drive more efficient cars and we all move to electric cars. So, at one point, we must figure out a different way to collect taxes to just do the basic things uh, of uh, maintenance and road. But more importantly, and this is something gaining a lot of debate um, around the country, and that is uh, revenues aside, I believe uh, pricing is important for the efficiency and performance of the transportation system. Recently, uh, talking to a reporter from Times Magazine, um, I told uh, I told the following that uh, bad pricing kills good planning. I don't care how good of a plan you have, if you don't price the system right, uh, you're not gonna get there. Um, of course, in San Diego, they really would love to fire me for saying these things, but uh, I, I strongly believe that If you don't price the system right, uh, nothing would work. People wonder, why are people attached to their car and not taking other modes when they are available to them? And pricing comes in. Uh, um, You know, uh, we just did in San Diego last May, started May 1st, we did a free youth pass. All, All youth in San Diego, 18 or under, can ride transit free. Our transit ridership, Almost or in, in a matter of months, uh, reached 90% pre COVID uh, on, on the mid cost. Uh, pricing matters. People react to pricing. I, I remember Stephanie in, in LA in the 1980s, they reduced the fare by half and we doubled the ridership. But more importantly, in LA right now, congestion is getting so bad um, that it doesn't matter what time of the day drive. Uh, anywhere you drive, uh, and the good news is, uh, LMTRO is providing a convenient alternatives. And if the pricing comes in, I think these alternatives become very attractive. Uh, so the two goals of one dwindling revenues has to be overcome by doing a new form, but changing behavior, reducing greenhouse gas emission, is equally as important to this discussion. And again. Um, While politically unpopular, this is a discussion we must have. And I applaud you, Stephanie, by doing what you're doing in L.A. County. I know the deputy secretary talked about New York and some resistance. We same thing here in San Diego. Uh, I can tell you that when my board adopted the plan last December, they put uh, a lot of conditions on me. Uh, And I said before, uh, changing behavior reduce uh, the most cost effective strategy in our plan to reduce greenhouse gas emission was a user charge. Period in the discussion. There is no two researchers would disagree on this. So uh, pricing matter, uh, I think the, the the goals while it is a necessity, but it's also a goal of of behavior uh, moving forward, especially for those regions that investing billions of dollars and alternatives, which include many regions of the country.
4: Thank you, Hassan. I think you're the role model for um, choosing courage over comfort. Let Thank me you. tell you that as a leader. Um, you talked about changing behavior. So, James, let me ask you you know, w- when we think about pricing, um, the default position is that we're charging people to drive. But I understand at SACOG, you all are working on an interesting project that looks at pricing differently and that is paying people to reduce driving that changing behavior element can you can you share more about this
6: yeah absolutely stephanie uh and by the way i i I completely agree with this on i i i think it's a great question should always be the first question what's your goal and i think the goal really first and foremost should be um uh, managing demand, changing behavior. That if, if we don't have that as a leading question, we're not going to do pricing very well. And we'll lose a once in a multiple generation opportunity as we transition the next five to 10 years. So in our region, uh, and because there is no pricing, as I was mentioning, uh, uh, toll is literally a four-letter word. We, we don't want to talk about it. People don't want to hear it. It feels very punitive. Um, it's not something in this election season people want to talk about. But as 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 you just said, the pilot project that we're doing in partnership with Hassan and Southern California SCAG uh, really is going to look at uh, using you know the sort of emerging idea of a mobility wallet, right? Something that can actually be um, you know a, a platform that people could uh, well both both perhaps pay under this as a pilot project. We're still trying to stand this up and develop it, right? But but pay for mobility driving, uh, especially higher at peak times, just like a utility does, uh, you know, it's summertime in Sacramento now, it's we're lucky if it's 100, under 100 degrees, and I'd turn my AC up from five and eight, because it's three times the price, I'm not, not going to do that, right. So how do we actually bring that over to the transportation, but at the same time, how do you give people alternatives? How do you give them options? And, and how do you incentivize those options? Because people are very price sensitive, right? It's behavioral economics. So our, you know, again, in partnership with our, with our, with our sister agencies, we want to figure out what would it take uh, uh, that on those days where congestion is just at an all-time high, air quality is really bad, uh, we're we're going to pay you to stay home. We're we're going to we're going to pay you to uh, to get on the bus if the air quality is good. Um, we're, we're can we incentivize you? Not much, but something, you know, to take active transportation, take active modes. And that goes into your wallet and you can use that at, at different times for different kinds of, uh, you know, mobility services. So so we think this kind of, you know, charges but uh, incentives. The, the, both sides of that coin is both the right way to think about this, but it also is a, is, is a way for people to understand that uh, they really do have options and those financial pieces work work both to dissuade certain Uh, you know, trips, but also encourage others.
4: Got it. Very important to remember price can be an incentive as well. So um, very interesting. We're all going to be looking forward to the results of uh, that pilot. Uh, Let me go back to Rima and the state of Washington. Um, Your opening remarks, you talked about um, really the tolling part, I think and the experience there, but you also have road user charging. Um, can you talk more about the road user charging aspects and in terms of equity and what you you all have seen in Washington?
8: Sure. Um, well, I think um, I, these comments are interesting. It's making me think of all sorts of things I want to say. Um, right I, I want to say that, you know, for us um, kind of that goal question around why are we doing this or what are we trying to accomplish? It's to, in my view, to evolve transportation funding policy so that we can increase equity and fairness, that we also fund our system. Um, And that's achieved through a number of things. And when we talk about managing uh, or affecting behavior change to reduce, for example, congestion, um, we need to be very careful that we think about what behaviors are controllable and we have choice over versus those that we don't. And what we've learned through our RUC research um is that we have a lot of drivers um that don't have a choice but to drive their car to work. They may live an hour from where they work. The transit service may not be such that is reliable enough to get them there or is capable of getting them there. And so they're they're put in a bit of a quandary and they're driving an older vehicle that's a gas guzzler. So they're paying a lot of gas tax and they're buying a lot of gas. Our system today is not able to really respond to that. And simple pricing structures can certainly incentivize behavior change, but it also can end up feeling very much like a penalty to a lot of drivers that really have no control or choice of how they're going to get to work every day. Um, So I I just want to kind of um, throw that out there. But in terms of our equity research around road usage charging, um, we really um, are faced with this opportunity to achieve that goal of really rethinking our transportation funding policy and what we're trying to achieve. Recognizing it's not a one-size-fits-all system, um, the gas tax really is that it assumes everybody can pay it and it's charged. Um, there is no options to how you for how you pay it or how much you pay. Um, And so for us, we see a real opportunity with road charging that we've never had to really reinvent how we think about how we pay for the system and who's paying for it and how do we accommodate the very needs of our traveling public. Um, It's it's just too easy to, to assume everybody can pay it or that everybody has access to transit or that everybody has that flexibility. Our policymakers, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and our research is really showing that our lowest incomes, under 30000 a year, for example, um, really 90% of their transportation costs are driven by um, vehicle ownership. Um, The cost of owning a car is extremely expensive. It's not the gas tax. It certainly won't be the road charge, which is, in our estimation, based on our analysis, around 4% of their total transportation costs. Over 90% is owning that vehicle, insuring the vehicle, fueling the vehicle, and even transit is a part of those transportation costs as well. Um, So once we start peeling the onion back and understanding through data and research um, what taxes are affecting who and how they affect them, we can then evolve our taxation structure and our policies to better accommodate uh, those impacts and be aware of what we're doing and maybe uh, avoid the use of blunt tools that we have traditionally used in, in funding our system.
4: Excellent point, uh, particularly in uh, wanting to avoid uh, blunt tools. I think as Asha uh, in your opening remarks in sharing some of the results of some of the uh, national polling research that you've done, um, you talked about, you shared some of the feedback, regardless of income on different um, policies related to the, the charging on tolling or a um, VMT. So my question is, you know, particularly as I listen to the rest of the panelists, um, there are all types of options uh, on how the pricing can be deployed. Um, One of the issues that we face here a lot in L.A. County when we talk about pricing on a larger scale is, uh, you know, this issue between trucks versus passenger vehicles. So I'm wondering, are there strategies that you've seen um, and advice for policymakers um, to really use as a guide to figure out how to differentiate this issue between charging trucks and passenger vehicles?
5: Well, this is an issue that, honestly, I didn't pay too much attention to for much of my career, but in the last few years, I've started to see as really crucial. Um, and if you look around the country at the pricing research and the pilots, they've tended, for the most part, to ignore trucks, <laughs> um, you know, to just, just look at light-duty cars. But our colleagues over in the East Coast have pointed out that trucks are not big cars. Um, that's a common phrase, um, that we need to really think carefully. So right now, the majority of trucks use diesel fuel, the majority of light duty or passenger cars um, use gasoline. And we've had a, a long system both at the federal level and at the state level of thinking about how we should set fuel tax rates so that we have some sort of equity. And this has been done through a system they call highway cost allocation studies. And I actually think that it is a concept that makes an enormous amount of sense today and that we can broaden it beyond the traditional view, which was let's look at all the costs of providing the roadway system and then try and estimate, you know, how much does a a big 18-wheeler Um, cost the system to accommodate it versus how much does maybe somebody's sort of elderly Honda Civic cost um, to to provide a trip for them. And then you try to figure out a way so that the fuel tax rates basically made everybody pay their fair share. Um, And the thing is that this used to look just at sort of the, the cost of building and operating the system. But we can expand that, I think, today to incorporate environmental costs, um, you know, the, the cost to society of emitting air pollution or, or greenhouse gases. Um, I, there's been some discussion of maybe we could have local overlays. Um, in addition, um, in that maybe in a highly congested region, people pay more to drive in reflection that it costs more to provide the service um, in that region where land is expensive and, and such. So I think that, and and I believe it was um, WD Secretary Secretary Trottenberg who pointed out that, you know, the trucking industry has a, a very long um sort of interest in these issues, because this is their job, like this, you know, much more than most of us, um, the cost of moving your vehicles is central to them, and they play this critical role in the economy. So I'm hoping that um, we will see over time, sort of, Bringing a large group of stakeholders together, including the trucking industry, and thinking through this, using this highway cost allocation framework to try to figure out as we switch to a mileage fee, assuming that happens, how do we have this sort of equity of allocating the costs. And and there's a lot of sort of technical detail and political choices to be made. But this framework of the highway cost allocation studies, I think, actually
4: could serve us really well to think through those issues. Excellent point. This trucking issue is um, a vexing one for sure. Um, Rima, have you guys looked at this in Washington state? I'm just curious.
8: Um, well, we have not. We um, The reason we have not looked at heavy trucks over 10,000 um, pounds is because in our state, we've got a, um, a structure of weight fees that our legislature, every time they've raised the gas tax, which they've done three times since 2005, uh, they raise those weight fees to the tune of about 15%. So while it's kind of a crude proxy, it's a way for kind of... Uh, Charging for that um, associated weight impact, but we also um, recognize the fact that our highways are engineered and built to carry the weight of the 20 30,000 plus uh, pound vehicles so when we think about correlation of cost and impact to those those pavement structures and those roadways and bridges. Um, you know, honestly, it's a de minimis impact because of the fact that we are engineering to carry them. So vehicles under 10,000 pounds, this also comes up a lot in our RUC um, outreach on reduces charging, is that maybe we do charge a per mile rate by the weight of passenger vehicles even, given uh, the swing you can see in different vehicles on a weight level. Um, but at the end of the day, because we're engineering our highways to carry the heavy rigs, Um, those impacts are really not one that's worth creating a more complicated rate structure over, um, given that they really don't have any impact. So trucks are definitely on the, on the horizon for us. And we're looking forward to learning more from the East coast research on it. Um, It definitely is um, kind of the sleeping giant in terms of funding, because those dollars from the diesel tax also fund our highways. Um, So a small incremental increase in fuel efficiency for those, Um, big rigs will have a much bigger ripple effect on our our funding streams um, than a more
4: significant increase in MPG in our passenger vehicle fleet. Great. Thank you, Rima. Well, we've reached the point in our program where there's time for only one last question. And guess what? Given this conversation, I'm going to go rogue. I'm going to take my prerogative and I want to ask a question to each of the panelists. My one question, if you could respond in 60 seconds or less, you know, given the discussion and we're fortunate, Um, thank um, MTI for this great session. Again, we heard from the congressman, the SEC, all of you and your expertise. What's one, uh, one thing you would want to change if you had the ability to change to make uh, pricing uh, more of a reality? What's your one piece of advice, one thing you would like to change? Let me go to... Oh, Hassan, you're on my screen. I'll go to you.
7: Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, you know, uh, changing, it's going to be an uh, uphill battle. No no question about it. It's going to take a lot of education and a lot of data to uh, answer a lot of questions that we cannot answer today. But the one thing uh, I would change is actually um I, I would would hope for a national policy to be done by an independent entity to talk about the facts, not the perception. Uh, that would make it much easier for regions like mine or Sacramento or even Washington to to deal with this or or, or LA. Uh, and I would I would definitely uh it's unfortunate, but the reason I said uphill battles, the, the politics is not there. Uh, I mean, the most liberal of people get uh persuade that it is not the time to do it and we've been saying it's not the time to do it for the last 30 years i would love to have uh, uh, an independent think tank and come and says you need to do it and you need to do it now and hear how you do it
4: nice are you listening mti okay james
7: thanks stephanie um
6: I, you know, I think you you kind of said it best. Uh, they're not a one size fits all, um, and and I think by that what I mean is I I want to make sure uh, that we we really think about just not simply going to a straight uh, per mile tax. That we allow some flexibility. We allow uh, we allow region by region uh, the ability to set based on demand, based based on uh, based on efficiency in the system, because that will then allow us to address equity issues. It will allow us to, I think, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and meet our climate goals. Uh, so that's that's the biggest thing to me is is we have one shot, I think, at making a big transition here. Uh, and it's, it's coming really soon in transportation time, right, which is usually glacial. So we can't we can't blow it.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Rima. Only one thing,
8: huh? Okay. <laughs> making, it, making it very challenging. I guess I would say, you know, I'd like to see, one thing I'd like to see changed is just increased engagement and attention from the public, maybe a little more attention to these issues. That's one of our biggest battles is public education, right? Acceptance is hard with anything. And when we're dealing with short attention spans and social media, the ability to have conversations around these rather complicated uh, topics is tough and and so increased engagement and really um, the acceptance and use of of data and analysis in kind of informing decision making I know politics will always be there, but um, hoping that that can be backed down a little bit and and that pragmatic decision making will will prevail with data behind it
4: absolutely
5: and asha well, I agree with everything that my fellow panelists have said. I will maybe add on, well, first of all, I think public education is critical. And as a side note, our survey found that 2% of Americans know that it's more than 20 years since the federal gas tax has been raised. 2%. So there is just this this widespread, you know, lack of knowledge, which is not to blame anybody. It's just a fact. But I think also it may be important to focus on helping to educate our elected officials. Um, You know, they deal with, Numerous issues for most, this is just like one very small piece, and, and they often don't frankly know a great deal more um, than the general public, and they seem like a group that's perhaps both particularly important to target with education, but also who will, of course, be particularly influential. And I've seen some small efforts in like particular regions to try and educate elected officials about these issues. But maybe if that's something that, um, you know, we can start to do more broadly across, across states, perhaps with some federal leadership, that that might be very valuable over time.
4: Absolutely. Fantastic um, takeaways from the panelists, from a national policy, a tailored approach, public engagement, and really educating our policymakers. Thank you all to our panelists. Again, Hassan Ikrata, Executive Director with SANDAG, James Corliss, Executive Director of SACOG. Rima Griffith, Executive Director of the Washington State Transportation Commission, and Dr. Asha Weinstein Agrawal, Director of the MTI National Transportation Finance Center. Thanks also to today's keynote speaker, Polly Trottenberg, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation, and of course, our gratitude to Congressman Peter DeFazio, Chair of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Thanks as well to Dr. Karen Philbrick, Executive Director of the Mineta Transportation Institute for her earlier participation. And we also thank all of you and remind you to visit commonwealthclubdot.org if you want, I'm sorry, that's commonwealthclub.org if you would like to become a member and to learn more about the club's upcoming events. Today's program has been sponsored by the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University. If you'd like to revisit any part of today's conversation, head over to the Commonwealth Club's YouTube channel to find it. I'm Stephanie Wiggins, Chief Executive Officer of the L.A. County Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.